0: Axios is Rana, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, new troubles for the Sprint T-Mobile merger and the real meaning of a life sentence. But first, billionaires battle back. So Bill Gates isn't someone who should be considering a vote for Donald Trump next November. He is a big tech mogul from the Pacific Northwest. He believes strongly in climate change, gives away most of his money, and has a much, much more gentle public demeanor. But when asked during a recent New York Times Dealbook conference what he'd do if faced with a choice between Trump and Warren, he officially dodged the question, but then left little doubt of his disdain for at least one of Warren's signature policies. I've paid over 10 billion in taxes. I paid more than anyone in taxes. Uh, but I, you know, I'm glad to have paid. You know, if I'd had to pay 20 billion, it's fine. Uh, but you know, when you say I should pay 100 billion, okay, then I'm starting to do a little math about. Uh, what I have left over. And Gates isn't alone. All sorts of other billionaires and multimillionaires appear to be both terrified and offended by the idea of a Warren presidency. Just days earlier, hedge fund manager Leon Cooperman literally cried about it on CNBC. Now, the idea of taxing the rich isn't new, particularly in Democratic Party politics, But with Warren and Bernie Sanders, it's not just a means to an end. In large part it's the end itself a way to rectify a fundamental inequality that they see as antithetical to american values perverse loophole in the capitalist system gates said during the same interview that he doesn't figure warren would even want to sit down with him to discuss it to which warren quickly replied via twitter that she'd be up for that conversation and that proved two things first warren is smart enough to seize an opportunity but two not even she's immune to the power of billionaires, as it's very unlikely that a policy complaint for you or I would result in a private sit down. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper on the politics of wealth taxes and the possibility that billionaire Mike Bloomberg could join the presidential primary field with Axio CEO, Jim VandeHei. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. Know everything about coding, but not so much about banking? For more than 35 years, Silicon
1: Valley Bank has been helping high-growth companies navigate through each stage of the startup journey. Stay
0: tuned to learn more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. We're joined now by Axio CEO Jim VandeHei. There are two types of math when it comes to the idea of a wealth tax. You know, there's the actual math, the percentages and the dollars and all that, but then there's also the political math. And when it comes to that, from your perspective, is there any reason to think that at least the idea of a wealth tax wouldn't be popular with the vast majority of American
1: voters? Oh, I can't imagine that most voters wouldn't love the wealth tax, especially when you're talking about people making more than $50 billion or whatever their totality of their wealth is. I don't think many Americans have sympathy for the super wealthy, and so it seems like a good place, a good honeypot for politicians to go dig into. I mean, the people who've been complaining, the Bill Gateses of the world who happen to have the tens of billions of dollars, again, I don't know that too many Americans are wringing their hands or losing sleep over whether or not he has to pay an extra 10 or $20 billion from his big pile of wealth, which is why Elizabeth Warren, why Bernie Sanders, why Democrats in general have pounced on this as one part of the solution for paying for what are some sort of astronauts Economical expansions of the federal government to pay for Medicare for all for wiping out student debt, you name it. These are some really, really big programs, some of the most ambitious increases of federal government that I've seen sort of in politics in my lifetime. And someone
0: has to pay for it.
1: And by the way, you can't pay for it all with a wealth tax. You can pay for some of it.
0: Are you surprised though, that and it's a weird thing to call them the moderate wing now, but that the quote, moderate wing of the Democratic presidential, you know, judge Biden, et etc. don't seem to be jumping on the idea of a wealth tax as deeply as Warren and Sanders? Thank I'm not shocked. Uh, I think they're both. I think We think of Buttigieg and Biden. They're
1: both trying to figure out where do they fit in the modern Democratic Party. The party raced so far to the left so fast on issues like Medicare for all, open borders, wiping away student debt, that they're trying to figure out what does centrism actually look like? Because Joe Biden is much more liberal version of the Joe Biden when he was vice president of the United States under Barack Obama. He's just not as to the left as a, a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren. So I think they're trying to figure out like what is a... Uh, what is is sort of a, a palatable set of tax increases. They too would have to raise taxes on the wealthy in different forms, maybe not the wealth tax, but through income tax or changing the capital gain structure. They need to raise revenue to pay for a lot of the programs that they too want to pay for. And so it's a relatively new idea in terms of being popularized in a, an election framework. And so I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they embrace it.
0: You're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but, but I, I've read a lot of folks suggest that Warren, for example, were to become president. She to try to get the idea of a wealth tax passed, even if she could get it through Congress and sign it, that it wouldn't necessarily be legal, that we can be taxed on income and other things, but to be taxed purely on what's in a bank account could be legally tricky. If a wealth tax didn't come through, does the rest of Warren's policy prescriptions, really for everything, from Medicare for all on down, fall apart? I don't think that's
1: the reason they would fall apart if they fall apart. Let's say that it is illegal. There's still other ways to target that same group of people with higher taxes that would be completely legal. I think the bigger problem is, is that there are a lot of lawyers out there that get paid a lot of money. So even if there were a wealth tax, they would figure out how to restructure the wealth distribution of these super wealthy people. And they probably would still avoid taxes. So you don't end up raising as much revenue as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Um, These professors out at Stanford think that you're going to actually raise. And The big problem, like listen, Medicare for all is uh, like uh, like we wrote it. You know that I I think she's that Elizabeth Warren's betting the presidency on Medicare for all. It's a hell of a bet. People have not paid this much attention to it. You are talking about a massive, massive, massive expansion of the federal government that is going to require a massive redistribution of wealth to be able to cover it. In all likelihood, much higher taxes. A lot of people feel you're going to ultimately have to raise taxes much higher on the middle class to be able to pay for it. And I think even more dangerous for her is you have to tell a bunch of people there are tens of millions if not more than 100 million people who have private health insurance that they like. And you're going to say, you can't have that. You're forced onto Medicare for all. And hey, trust me, the federal government's going to do a better job than your private company. The federal government, who you don't maybe trust to do a lot in your life, they're going to actually make sure that you have superior health care, superior doctors, superior service at a better price. And I just think a lot of people are going to say that doesn't pass the smell test. That does not seem to be their experience when dealing with the federal government.
0: Let's move and keep with billionaires, but move to a specific one, which is Michael Bloomberg reports last night that he is at least considering testing the waters. So call it a trial balloon, I guess, to get into the Democratic primary, maybe as a reflection of believing that Biden isn't strong enough. And he really, really, really dislikes the idea of a Warren or Sanders candidacy. From your perspective, why will this go any differently than Howard Schultz's? I understand he's in the Democratic Party, not an independent, but still New York billionaire moderate jumping in. I'm with you, Dan. I don't get
1: it. I don't understand uh, the hysteria in the media around the potential of him getting into the race. I don't see how he jumps into this race and suddenly rockets to the top of it. Best I can tell from polling, people seem mostly satisfied with the Democratic field that they have. And when I look at the modern Democratic Party, I don't look at a group of people who are pining for an old rich white guy from New York who really isn't all that charismatic to come save the Democratic Party. I think they're looking for something closer to a Buttigieg or something closer to an Elizabeth Warren. I don't see the opening. I know Bloomberg's talked to a lot of people. He's done a lot of polling. Even the polling that he's done privately shows that he's not going to enter this race with a big chunk of the Democratic Party behind him. I know that that polling shows that he needs to knock Joe Biden out almost instantly for him to have any chance, any lane to win the nomination. Joe Biden's not going anywhere. He's not going to get out of the race because Michael Bloomberg is. I will say the biggest effect that Michael Bloomberg could have is on Joe Biden, because Joe Biden is sucking wind right now when it comes to raising money. He doesn't have enough of it. He's just not, uh, for whatever reason, been able to put together the type of operation that can raise the kind of money that he needs to raise to sustain being the front runner. If Michael Bloomberg gets in there, he's got something that we all wish we had. We all want to be taxed through the wealth tax because he's got the billions and billions and billions of dollars almost endless supply of cash to try to fill that moderate wing. If he used it, he could swamp out Joe Biden. And that doesn't necessarily mean he swamps out Joe Biden, therefore Michael Bloomberg is a Democratic nominee. I think he's got a hell of a hard road.
0: Well, right. Because what he really potentially does is takes votes from Bloomberg and maybe from Buttigieg, and he gives a better lane to the Warren, who's the person he doesn't want to win in the first place.
1: Yeah, listen, he's a very, very like capable businessman and uh, very uh, obviously ambitious uh, philanthropically and, and politically and he hasn't gotten in races before because he does the polling and he worries that his participation in the election ends up electing a Republican or electing a Trump. In this case, he's saying, well, I want to get in because I don't like the field. I don't really like the war in politics. I agree with you. I think the end effect could be that he could help Warren. He can help Sanders because he's a great contrast in some ways. He's, he's the type of person they want to run after, run against. Joe Biden's a little bit harder because Joe Biden does try to position himself as a guy from Scranton, the guy who can connect with working class whites or There's nobody that looks at Michael Bloomberg and says, ah, this is a Scranton kind of guy.
0: Jim Vandeheye, thank you so much for joining us. Take care. My final two right after this.
1: Earlier, we highlighted Silicon Valley Bank's experience with helping startups. But with Silicon Valley Bank, you're also getting a partner committed to supporting you as you strive to hit your next milestones. Perhaps that's why 50% of VC-backed tech and life science companies choose Silicon Valley Bank. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn
0: more. Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas. Bank here. Now it's time for my final two, and first up is the $26 billion mega merger between Sprint and T-Mobile, which would cut the number of national wireless carriers from four to three. The deal already received regulatory approval from the Justice Department and the FCC, but missed its own closing date last week because of pending litigation from 10 state attorneys general, who argue that fewer competitors will lead to higher prices. T-Mobile CEO John Legere tried going on a charm or maybe bribery offensive yesterday, talking about all of these great 5G initiatives that his company is ready to launch if only the deal could get closed. It's legislative catnip. But of more interest to financial markets might have been Legere's acknowledgement that some of the deal terms may need to be renegotiated now that the original deadline passed which could mean that the $26 billion merger, well, it won't be a $26 billion merger anymore. And finally, just because it's Friday, there is a man named Benjamin Schreiber in Iowa who was found guilty of murder in 1997 and sentenced to life in prison. At some point, he also signed a do not resuscitate order in case of a medical emergency. Anyway, Schreiber got septic poisoning in 2015 and arrived at the hospital unconscious and at least for a moment or two, actually dead. But despite the do not resuscitate order, the hospital did basically bring him back to life. And then he sued the state, arguing he was sentenced to life without parole, but not to life plus one day. Once you're dead, Schreiber argued, even for a few minutes, life sentence over. Clever, fascinating, but apparently unpersuasive to the Iowa courts, which this week said that Schreiber will have to remain behind bars until he dies for good. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Jesse Lee, have a great national cappuccino day. And we'll be back on Tuesday with another Pro Rata podcast.